2020 allegedly according to that thing we call a calendar and this indeed is the show that you looked for because you know what it is you know where it is you found it uh one way or another so greetings to you if you're on the live stream and if not you're on some other uh, uh device at another time another place whatever it may be we do welcome you to the show for this particular tears day tuesday the second day of the week Always a great day on the show as far as I'm concerned. Why? Because in the first hour, we have Michael Swanson with us, who is an author, podcaster, guy behind WallStreetWindow.com. I mean, financial news, yes, indeed, but also global politics. He's a writer uh, uh, in many different ways, publisher. Wow. Uh, a lot of stuff Mike does. But anyway... Love talking to Mike Swanson. Never know what you're going to get in that first hour. Second hour, the rotation continues. J.P. Satilli, the news vandal himself, will be with us. And I wonder if I'll have to discuss selective enforcement with J.P. But in this hour, uh, I already know part of what we're going to wind up discussing, and I'm looking forward to it. Also, um, gee, yesterday was supposed to be the day that Carmine Savastano's book was going to be released in total, but... Maybe it's going to be a couple days delay. I don't know. We're going to get all that news and find out what's been on the Wall Street Window podcast as well. Uh, but first, let's find out how Mike Swanson's doing. Mike, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm doing uh, great. Yeah, actually, uh, Carmon's book, it's its out on Amazon uh, for sale. Uh, and it's actually selling pretty good. It's ranked uh, something like, 25 or something out of all world history books for the 20th century and some top of some psychology uh, categories. But I think Thursday it's going to be formally released. Uh, there's, you know, he's doing some stuff and putting out a press release and so forth. But people can, can buy it now. And one, one person's read a review so you can see what other people think of it <laughs> besides besides myself for Carmine. Right. And look, uh, of course, I'm going to talk to Carmine about that this Thursday. Uh, but also, you know, we, we do run the little book commercial, too. Uh, sure. Which, uh, you know, is happening with the podcast, has been happening for the past uh, little bit. Although I was um, not putting out as many podcasts because I had to have a tooth out and all that, uh, I still was putting out other stuff, and the commercial has been circulating a bit. So we do know about the book, and we're going to find out more about it on Thursday. But in the meantime, uh, you also have the podcast going on. What What is the latest from the Wall Street Window podcast? Well, actually, I think the last thing I put up was I was talking with him. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I, I'll have a new one out in a couple of days i kind of took a break myself um as much as i can because the stock market was closed on monday and it gives me a long weekend uh so I, I usually take those weekends to to my advantage but um i we were talking before we got on here both of us saw a documentary that's on netflix i just saw it on there by accident 
and it's about the Malcolm X assassination. Right. I think it's called uh, who. What, what is it? The Two Killed Malcolm X. Who That's Killed Malcolm I, X, yeah. It's a five-part series, and, and in some, some ways, you know, Karma, I don't think we, I don't know if I've mentioned the name of Karma's book, Human Time Bomb. In a way, it, it's it's a little bit, um, you know, one could loosely link it to this because, you know, his book's about violence and, and people, you know, committed violence against Malcolm X. Five mm-hmm. people were involved in shooting him in the Audman uh, ballroom, and he—he's been someone I've always, for some reason, been interested in. I—I I read, you know, that Alex Haley book, his autobiography, and and uh, someone, a historian named Manning Marable, put out a, a recent book a few years ago mm-hmm. about him that I, that I actually did read, and you know, I've seen a lot of his speeches, and I don't know, he's maybe it's just the way he speaks. It's just interesting. Figure and he's also interesting because he's somebody uh, who evolved, uh, whose mind changed over things. In, in some ways, that's right. I think part of the interest a lot of people have in President Kennedy. You know, he did that, and Malcolm X is someone who also did that. But Malcolm X also became became a more. Uh, he was always a outspoken against the government. In some ways, you know, against mm-hmm. police violence, but then, um, in the last year of his life, he became more against uh, the U.S. foreign policy in a way, perhaps only you know, <laughs> no one else is really doing at the time with his stature. I would think. Uh, well, um, see, and, and you take that. Yeah. Well, one thing you, I just think about today. Um, and, uh, and that was the uh, recent Trump – I don't want to talk about Trump, but the State of the Union address he gave, mm. you know, the one thing uh, Pelosi and, and everyone in there agreed on was they wanted the type of foreign interventions that Malcolm X would have been against. For, ex- for example, they were all praising this CIA character, Juan Guaido, to the moon uh, and <laughs> – you know, <laughs> the complete opposite of what Malcolm X would have said about him. So anyway, well, see, Ma- I want to talk X, more about Malcolm X than today, but yeah. you know what I'm well, saying. <laughs> Ma- Ma- Malcolm X is a, is a hard character uh, for some people to discuss easily because, you know, he, he was certainly a more dangerous speaker and thinker publicly. Uh, his viewpoints did evolve quite a bit. Uh, one one At one point, one could say that he was very... Um, directly say racially divisive uh you know uh, about the defense of what he considered to be his own people and so on and so forth and that viewpoint evolved over time uh and and he also started to recognize after especially after his break from the nation of islam uh that uh, that there was uh, certainly a a, a, a government program in place to go after people like himself, which, uh, you know, did happen uh, across the board to a lot of individuals who were connected to the civil rights, uh, you know, movements, so on and so forth over time. Uh, so one could say that, you know, th- there's an interesting public evolution to the man. There is a, a, a more, um, combative nature to his rhetoric. 
Uh, you know, certainly, I mean, I even have paraphrased the man on this show where I talk about how, you know, look, I, I appreciate and respect Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he is being, you know, uh, exalted by people who believe in progressive ideals. But at the same time, uh, I, I don't necessarily sign off on the concept of nonviolence altogether. Uh, in that, uh, at some points, there there is violence which is necessary for self-defense. And this is one of the points that Malcolm raised over and over again, that um, that is not an act of violence. That is simply self-defense, and this is the right of anybody to do so regardless of the circumstance. Uh, and, and, you know, by any means necessary, I mean, it was definitely more of an intense rhetoric. Well, I think it should be noted that even though, you know, all the talk of, Nonviolence that Martin Luther King did. I think it should be noted that, you know, most of these black people in the South, if not all of them, probably had guns in their houses. Um, especially the NAACP members. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have these instances of the Ku Klux Klan or whoever showing up and going into people's houses and shooting them. All the Murders that took place during the civil rights movement where people, you know, accosted in public or while driving down the road, not, not people barging in their house or something. So that's an element of self-defense. And, and I think, you know, the, the people in the Klan knew that, you know. Mm-hmm. No, and even when you had nonviolent speakers and things like this, it doesn't mean that they're, uh, uh, they're security There's no security. Guards. Right, their security uh, w- was armed in some cases, and uh, logically so, not you know for provocative purposes, but logically so. And and again, remember that uh, you know people did attempt to uh, blow up uh, uh, Martin's house uh, more than once. Sure, uh, and and people did in fact firebomb Malcolm X's house. I That's mean, right. this did happen. Um, you know, not not the most common occurrence necessarily but uh and when you're talking about people that were accosted directly i mean in a lot of cases you find that law enforcement was either complicit or participating uh quite frankly in some of these areas of the south like we saw well, the Mississippi one little Burning story case. Uh, yeah about uh violence in the south um the uh, <clears throat> the town i live in is really considered a southern town martin luther king came here right in there were demonstrations in 1963, and one of the civil rights activists at that time, the way he got into it, he was a union leader. There was a textile plant that had a white and a black union, and this guy, he served in the World War II, and he – I never met him. He, he died of cancer, but um, when he came back, he became a union leader, and that was his activism. He was a union leader, shop steward. And this is in the state of Virginia. And he went down to Alabama to visit relatives. Okay. This is probably 1962. Um, and he stopped at a gas station in Alabama. Right. And people at the white people at the gas station saw him. And saw that his vehicle had out-of-state license plates. And they assumed that he, you know, was a civil rights activist from out of of the state, out of their state. 
and they they beat him to a pulp. Um, and after that, he became a civil rights activist too. But yeah. that's the type of violence that was going on. I mean, can you imagine? You just go out of town and people, you know, in parts of the South. I'm not saying everywhere, but in the in Alabama and Mississippi, in, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, they were the most places that had the most uh, most violence. But this um, right. this series is five parts, and it's about uh, an independent researcher, the type of people we know <laughs> right. in the Kennedy uh, assassination research community, which is kind of, which is it makes it interesting to watch, right? And here's a guy, you know, that they're probably has done all most all the re, you know the bulk of the research. This whole thing is based on, right? And he is digging around and pretty convincingly, convincingly to me, I think. Uh, Fingers the person that white that killed him that fired the fatal shot. The when the assassination happened, three men were arrested. Right. Uh, one of the people that was arrested was somebody that was shot with a handgun while he was getting away, mm-hmm. and the crowd uh, was getting ready to. Well, they know, just about wanted to tear him apart. Yeah, they were getting ready to kill him yeah. or do something to him. And the police stopped him and, and then, you know, arrested the guy. Uh, but the other two people arrested later, and there is no physical evidence that they had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. What happened was the district attorney, his prosecuting team, just got witness statements and very vague identifications and arrested these two people. And when the trial happened, the one man that had been wounded said they didn't do it. The other two didn't do it. He said he was guilty, <laughs> but they weren't. Uh, but they convicted right. them anyway. And the the fellow that said the other two were innocent, he later gave a deposition uh, with some information of the other people involved. Now, um, in, in fairness, really quickly here, Mike, yeah. in, in fairness, uh, you know, up until uh, the past couple of years, people like Jim DiEugenio used to publish articles uh, related to research in the Malcolm sure. X case. Uh, and, and then he changed his website over to, uh, you know, the Kennedys and King, and you don't see it so much anymore. Joe Green has written about this. There have been other researchers who have looked into this, certainly, and have found that uh, – you know, there are many, many questions that remain unanswered through the prosecution of the alleged murderers. Um, and, and this is a fascinating trip into that and also a, a look at what it's like for a regular citizen researcher to go into this circumstance. Now, most of the information, I'll be honest with you, that's in this documentary I knew before. Sure. Because I had seen it elsewhere. Other people had uncovered this. And uh, this gentleman who, who is the uh, centerpiece, so to speak, of the uh, of the documentary, I, I do forget his exact name. It's Muhammad something or other. Very, uh, you know, Islamic sounding name, uh, uh, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, he, he's just a regular guy. He's not, yeah. uh, you know, he's not a lawyer. He's not uh, an investigator by profession. Or anything like that. He is very much the kind of people that you and I are used to dealing with. 
uh, when digging into these cases, but he does the right thing here, goes back, looks over the official record, then goes and interviews individuals who were involved directly one way or another in the event, which, by the way, this documentary also lays out rather nicely uh, the the, uh, the the precursor or the prologue, if you will, before the assassination uh, kind of lets you in on a, a general history here, which, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to speak to when Malcolm X's name comes up. Like I said, very dangerous, hot button sort of name, even all these years later after his death. Uh, a lot of people don't really want to discuss Malcolm X and exactly what happened here. Uh, they talk about the break from the Nation of Islam. They talk about his own mosque. Um, well, you know what's funny yeah. is, you know, as I was graduating from high school, the Spike Lee Malcolm X movie came out. And I think – That was my next point I was going to go to. Yeah, I, I don't even know if I knew who he was, you know, before then, probably, you know, honestly. And then that movie came out and a lot of people, you know, black people would be wearing these Malcolm X shirts for a couple years. And then I think – I don't know when, but that seemed to have faded away. Uh, at least I didn't notice it anymore. And then uh, yesterday I went to a store and this girl was wearing a Malcolm X shirt. You know, I, oh, maybe no, they're it's... just out there. I just don't notice them. But All right, well, I did, you know, I just watched the show. So I got you. Yeah. But Mike, let me let me. So not... I, I told her I said, yeah, I just watch this documentary. You should watch it. You let know? me let me not scold you for being culturally unaware. But let me tell you that before, yeah, hey, I, I, I'm free to admit that. I'm, yeah, well, I don't know. Before, what's going on. <laughs> but, but honestly, before Spike Lee made the Malcolm X movie, which was a big deal, by the way, when it was made, there was a whole thing that went on. But I mean, I was living in a place where, uh, you know, I individuals were very uh, uh, considerate of the memory of Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X had been somebody who had been discussed. If you were in black neighborhoods, quite honestly, uh, you know, he would be discussed and even dealing with people that were part of the nation of Islam, which I had done directly on more than one occasion. Um, you know, that was an interesting discussion always when you brought up Malcolm X, because, you know, uh, it, it was generally thought that uh, effectively people who were connected to the nation of Islam decided to kill him and, and uh, executed him. Uh, you know, through assassination, and that's something that has generally been carried out. People who are connected to the Nation of Islam directly and uh, would would not necessarily speak about it that way would generally well, that acknowledge. That was one interesting thing. The yeah. first thing that got me in the movie, like you said, most of this information and you knew about, right? Yeah. I I'm not. I was. I only read like one book about. His assassination. Well, let, let me finish this long point. Time ago. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, let sure. me just finish this point is that when you talk to them about it, they would acknowledge that Malcolm was at one time part of the nation and they would acknowledge that Malcolm had done mm -hmm. some good and they would. But they when it came to talking about the assassination, that was the end of it. Don't touch the okay. subject. And I'm telling you that that was that way for decades. Uh, that that was just the way it was. Don't talk about it. And. Uh, there were people in youth culture that on occasion, you know, did adapt and adopt Malcolm X, you know, in a, uh, a, a sort of emblematic sense as someone who spoke out. I mean, uh, on my high school walls, there were posters with quotes from Malcolm X. You didn't necessarily get that in a white neighborhood, to be honest with you, uh, Mike. But that was all around me. So I was fully aware of who this guy was. I was fully aware of how he died. And obviously, when I started studying conspiracy stuff related to JFK, it led me into RFK. It led sure. me into Malcolm X. It led me into Martin Luther King. It led me into all these areas because again and again, you had people that 
for one reason or another, were speaking against the establishment uh, across the board and in a way that became dangerous because they could move crowds. See, that's the thing. Whether they were a politician or they were an activist, they could move a crowd. And quite frankly, again, when you have Malcolm graduating from the idea of I only want to talk to black people to I want to speak to everyone. And when you had, you know, Dr. King not just focusing on the abuses of the rights of black people, but then also speaking about the Vietnam War, speaking about poor people, speaking about how, listen, I've got more in common with these people here who might even hate me than I do with the people that are actually oppressing me. Uh, this is what made them dangerous figures. And, you know, again, the Kennedys in, in their own way and in their own lane, if you will, were like that too because Bobby was definitely for taking us out of the Vietnam War. John F. Kennedy, a variety of reasons, and I don't have to go over them with you, but the thing is that when you're speaking against the establishment and the machinery of it, you become a dangerous character, and I put them all in the same category. Now, again, Malcolm is a more divisive character and uh, definitely more racially charged in his rhetoric uh, than any of them and definitely more abrasive to the, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. Sorry, Mike, I, I hate to even use this term on the show with you, but the average white man finds him a little more abrasive than Martin Luther King, who's now an acceptable figure, if you will. Uh, you know, given, given the, uh, a time of history and the perspective that's provided by it, we now have an acceptable celebrated figure. It's okay to celebrate Martin Luther King. But Malcolm X still has that dangerous element attached to him and has that, uh, that, that emotional response that is evoked from others where they don't appreciate it. Um, which to me, Malcolm in a lot of ways was a lot more common sense than uh, many of the others who were out there doing their things. And, and let's not forget Medgar Evers was also murdered. You know, there were a variety of individuals who were fighting the system, so to speak, during this time period who were assassinated one way or another. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to keep that in mind. And as we go through that documentary, which I watched as well, simply because I was interested, I had no idea that I'd be talking to you about it. But... Because I know all of these pieces of history, I know the details of the assassination, I know who was convicted, I know how that was questionable, um, but nobody seemed to want to pick this up. So I find this remarkable that Netflix did this, although they have been sort of activists with some of their documentary series before, including about the, uh, you know, the Central Park Five and things like that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's rather interesting to see that this from a mainstream corporate entity, is something that would have been part of the fringe, not discussed on, you know, uh, uh, any sort of mainstream uh, uh, media channel before. I find it fascinating, and there's there's an interesting uh, punchline to all of this, Michael, which uh, is, is funny to me, again, because most of this information I knew. Now, there was some new stuff in this documentary to me, and I knew that the rumor on the street, you got to understand, because... All of a sudden, you know, the, the idea that everybody came out of New York, the assassination happened in New York City, um, that th this is the root of where the conspiracy came from and the people that were the fruits of Islam, which are the, uh, you know, uh, pseudo-militaristic, uh, you know, 
nation uh, branch, if you will. You see them today. Uh, they're bodyguards for everybody. Even when I told you that story about Tootie from the Facts of Life coming to my uh, high school to uh, campaign for Jesse Jackson. I don't know if you remember that story, Mike. But it was the Nation of Islam that was her security. Uh, and it was the, the guys like this that were the fruits of Islam at one point in time that make up the individuals that get assigned to security for people like this. Um, there's also an interesting part in this about Muhammad Ali and that whole struggle between uh, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X. A lot of stuff in that documentary. And with that, I, I turn it back over to you. But I think it's interesting that for the first time, I bet, there's a lot of people out there that were not aware of uh, all this information that's in the first, like, three parts of it easily that uh, that pretty much I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. I was checking off boxes of things I already knew in my mind saying, oh, this is good. This is a documentary that understands that there is yet another story outside of what the mainstream press has told you, outside of what the authorities have told you. And uh, there is good reason to question all of this. So I, I found it fascinating for the first three parts that, uh, you know, Netflix – well, you know, for lack of a better term here, had the guts to release this thing. Um, but but go ahead, Mike. I mean, please give me more of your thoughts on it, because I'm sure that some of it was astonishing uh, later on in the series, for sure, because even I was surprised by a couple of things. Like, again, uh, I knew that the word on the street in New Jersey, in North Jersey especially, was that, no, the assassins, the people who really killed Malcolm X, came out of Newark. Uh, you know, that was just kind of a, an open secret on the street. Now you go and try and ask that question as an outsider. You go and try and ask that question as somebody who's not known to anybody in, in Newark. And, uh, you, you know, he, he got a, he got a, uh, eh, you know, an odd response from the people he asked in that documentary. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you, the listener decided to go ahead, get motivated and go do that, you, you, you might find yourself in a, uh, in an intimidation situation. People might forcibly want you to leave quickly. You might be quickly uninvited to wherever it is you are. If you bring this up in North Jersey, I'm just telling you, but it is an open secret. Go ahead, Mike. Well, that, that, to me, watching it, that was one of the most interesting things because, um, <laughs> I, for, honestly, I'm, I'm also, I've been thinking over the past two weeks about history. What's, what, what is it really, uh, from a, you know, what is history actually? And, uh, how do we remember it and all these sort of things? Part of, a lot of the reason why is because I'm, have written a draft conclusion to that Vietnam book, and that's kind of something I'm talking about in there. So that topic's been in my mind, and then this, then I watch this, and one of the interesting things is, as you said, this guy is living that the show's based on or focused on. He's living in the Washington D.C. area, and he is going to New Jersey and asking questions. He thinks he has figured out who uh, one of the gunmen were and he's asking around about this person and several times in the here in the show he's told not to ask about it what are you doing no one actually threatens him uh, or anything to that effect but still they kind of 
are, are acting that way. And mm. as you said, by the end, it becomes quite apparent that everyone knew that this guy did it or was involved. Uh, it's like an open secret almost. Everyone knows. Um, it, they even have a big fun- – the guy dies and they have a funeral and he's honored as a community citizen. Uh, he's even in a political commercial. It's got Cory Booker in it. Mm. Uh, and, and then the, uh, researcher talks to some political official who attended the funeral and talks to her about, did, did, did she know that it's alleged that he was involved? And yeah, of course she knew. She tells it, but, but he did all this other stuff afterwards. And that, you know, th- their attitude is basically, well, that's past history and we just move on. For the good of the city is essentially their mm-hmm. attitude and don't dig this up and you're not doing any good and you just don't do these sort of things. Well, and, I, and I assure you, by the way, Michael, that, if, you know, when he's sitting there and talking to uh, one of the guys who is, you know, in charge over there at the Newark Mosque, yeah. when, when he's talking to that guy and you see the cameraman is definitely at a distance, okay? Yeah. I promise you that if it was not well known that this was being filmed – that conversation mm-hmm. would have gone entirely differently. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, sense. And and I'm telling you now, yeah, that is the attitude. Let 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 sleeping dogs lie. Let it be. But what got yeah. me what personally about that though that is just <laughs> ironic is I'm not, I wrote a local history book and and uh, as I mentioned before, something about the civil rights movement. You know, I know a lot about the local history here mm-hmm. and I'm not researching or writing about that now it's been years ago but i've had similar conversations with uh, people saying those exact same thing let like, it go <laughs> right? <laughs> but for, but these were all white people why why dig up the civil rights you know and why do this and do that you know so it's like it's like oh this is interesting this is black people saying this is, well, i've the, had white people say the exact same thing well, you know because at the end of the day this guy. Yeah, at the end <laughs> of the day mike what what it's about is you know, look, we don't want this unwanted negative attention brought to something uh, that that is a good thing one way or another because it'll take away from that. You know, the, the- now, I, well, I think there's something else, at least with these people in this, and that is they feel guilty or they're afraid to be felt guilty about it. So they just want it to go away in that sense, too. Well, it's not just guilt, though, because, look, let's be objective for a minute. The mosque in Newark, Mm. I'll tell you right now, I I know personally, has has turned some people's lives around. Oh, I don't doubt it. Brought them out of some bad spots. I mean, look, churches do this, too, by the way. Uh, You know, convicted felons of all sorts, uh, uh, people that, you know, have substance abuse issues, whatever. Religious organizations, in a lot of cases, become a positive force in the community, um, you know, by attempting to rehabilitate people, by assisting people who are in trouble. And that mosque has done that. So who wants that negative attention on that guy who is connected to that mosque and is now dead, which is another remarkable thing, is that most of the uh, most of the perpetrators, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sure dead, um, which I think they said at the end of the documentary. Well, it's, but, it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's that's what I mean. That's why it's that this is kind of interesting to me. What is history? You know, it, 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 so, for example, when I wrote this uh, local history book. 
uh, one of the things I wrote about was a race ride, they call it, uh, that happened around 1890 and somebody, uh, shot somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And I put their name in the book, but I mean, right. it's over a hundred years ago. Right. Now, I mean, a hundred, 40 years ago. And I'm surprised um, you didn't get their descendants calling well, you I up did. going, oh, I, I, okay. Someone yeah. that was a descendant was angry. But the thing about it is, is it wasn't a secret, you know, at all. It, but but here's something more, a little bit more, um, where you do have a choice. Um, there was a textile strike in the eight, 1950s here. And, uh, you know, they had a picket line. And somebody drove by the picket line and shot at, at into the crowd. They didn't kill anybody, but they and they were a, a supervisor, and they did this. And I was looking at the old newspapers, and and this story was in there and it had the person's name. Right. And this guy, when I published the book, uh, again, this is now almost twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he was working in a Sears. Um, and I know people who knew him. Mm-hmm. And so I asked myself, should I put this guy, should I put this in the book or not? Um, and, and I did, you know, I just said, right. screw it. Yeah, it's in the newspaper. No, I got <laughs> it's not you. like a secret thing, you know? So, well, I me... this. so, so that's what I mean. If you are going to do yeah. history, mm-hmm. then I think you have to, be do things like that well, see, I, let me let me you know, let me just break what this, it is yeah huh? let me let me break this down for you mike because here's what the problem is there there is a a divide among people that are interested in history at all um and to some people uh history is effectively the written lies that people allow themselves to repeat so that they can continue to have an excuse to make mistakes in the future. Uh, you know, and, and to people like yourself and me, we consider that history should be written honestly and boldly uh, to encourage people to learn from it. And unfortunately, that is not the view of a lot of people who can, who are considered historians, who call themselves historians, and they don't want to be honest because, you know what, it might upset apple carts. It might be a problem for some people, even though it is the truth. They don't want it. Uh, so that's what it comes down to in a lot of cases. Well, and that's true. It's kind of fascinating to me to watch this Malcolm X thing because, again, like I said, the majority of what this researcher brings up, are known things. They are not, you know, hidden things that he just recently unearthed. Uh, he did dig up a few interesting facts and factoids, if you will. Uh, but he also dug up some interesting records, which, you know, have been sitting there, but nobody has really asked about. Uh, he, he went through the prosecutorial records. He uh, interviewed some people that had not been interviewed, including, you know, somebody who served time, you know, and, and, and all that. Uh I got to tell you, I, I, I think it is uh, it's an excellent and refreshing thing to see. Um, and uh, it's well done. It's well done. I mean, it's it's just well constructed, uh, you know, from a cinematic, a documentary film standard sort of sense. It's well done. Uh, and and uh, apparently it's been effective. And why do I say that, Mike? Uh, you, you know why I'm saying it's been effective, right? 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, they're saying now that the DA's office in New York is going to reopen the case. Right. I don't know what that really means. Probably they're going to see if the two gunmen they convicted should their cases should be overturned and then declared innocent. That's probably mm-hmm. what they're talking about. I, I don't know what else they well, it's hard beyond to that say. they would do. It's hard to say, but the fact that you even have a, uh, a law enforcement agency sure. like a district attorney's office willing to reexamine something that has already been closed as a case, basically, uh, is, is remarkable, and I think it's, uh, it's a great thing, and it's, uh, you know, a piece of positive news as far as I'm concerned. Because here's the thing, uh, you know, no, no matter how long it takes sometimes, uh, you know, if we can occasionally get the justice system to behave properly, uh, it, it would, it would be nice to see that the record is set straight. That, uh, you know, people's names can be cleared when they've been convicted of things they shouldn't have been. And also, you know, the perpetrators, even if they are named, you know, uh, uh, post-mortem, they should be named. They should be known. And they should be recorded in history as the individuals who committed the criminal acts that they've committed. So, honestly, I don't know what it means that the DA's office is going to look at it. Does it mean they're going to fully reopen the case, re-examine it, re-prosecute it, re-litigate this, uh, clear the records of individuals that have already been convicted? I don't think we have a clear answer as to exactly what this means, but the fact that there is any answer, any response at all, from the district attorney in New York is uh, is is remarkable, and uh, as I said before, refreshing. I think, Michael, uh, what do you think about it? Oh, sure, but you know, I think that maybe one of the you know the uh, there's different stories to this and to the documentary, and one of them mm-hmm. is probably an indictment of the justice system for, for example. They demonstrate that the FBI had basically complete surveillance on the Nation of Islam. They had um, Elijah Muhammad's house basically bugged, mm-hmm. his phones bugged, and I mean they had transcripts of. They knew everything the guy was doing, as well as Malcolm, as well as Malcolm X. Now I didn't. I, of course, I knew. We already knew about Malcolm X, right. you know, being phone tapped and followed and but i didn't know the extent of the surveillance they had elijah muhammad but what makes it in a, you know an indictment on them from a, the standpoint of justice is that they had evidence about who did the shootings or and who didn't they had a better descript they had better evidence than the uh district attorney did of, of course they did Better but, description of the gunman. They had informants right. in in the in the ballroom. I think the number was twelve or eighteen or something. Well, here, here's the and, thing about and, that. And Mike. they had better yeah. descriptions of who the gunmen were, and they didn't match the people that were arrested and convicted. So the FBI people in charge of the case would have known that these these two people were innocent. Well, let's. They let, didn't care. Yeah. They didn't care. Let's, that's that's the that may be the biggest takeaway. Is really in the end, I'm surprised. Malcolm X is killed, mm-hmm. and honestly, nobody actually cares who did it. See, not I'm surprised. The, not the people, not the <laughs> authorities, not the uh, 
you know, people in Newark today, the only people who care is this in the in the movie is the guy running around researching it. Right. Well, here's the surprising thing to me is that you're even remotely, uh, you know, does, uh, you know, you find this remarkable. Uh, why? Because look, under all circumstances here, we know that they kept anyone who is considered subversive, dangerous, whatever, uh, at that time and, and today still, you're under surveillance. Um, so of course they had Elijah Muhammad under surveillance. They had people in the nation of Islam in the upper echelon of well, the that command was, structure. That was, when you say about stuff already known, that was the one thing that in the first or second episode, the, star of the show whatever we should be calling him he he was interviewing yeah a, a top assistant to elijah muhammad named john ali right john ali and it turns and, out <laughs> and I, but i but i the book i the one book i read about malcolm's assassination it's an old book uh but it was pausing that this john ali guy was the main mastermind or instigator of it and it, and he was an FBI informant at the same time. So the guy was theorizing, well, the FBI was involved in it because John Ali, you know, was the instigator. But, but, and here, okay. and, but when I was watching this, they interviewed this John Ali guy in the first or second episode. I'm like looking and thinking, oh my goodness, they're gonna, they're gonna really get into this guy. And he, he doesn't really, he's not really that important in this show. But that's not true. See, that's, huh? that's not true. Here's the thing. This documentary does not disprove that John Ali could not have been connected to the conspiracy. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, but, and, but, and, but I thought yeah. they were going to make a big deal out of him. Right. But they didn't. You know, you know, they did because he didn't have any more evidence outside of no, what he had. They didn't. They See, didn't. that's the thing. But he it's remarkable to... that they actually interviewed him. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. I'm watching this like, wow, they're interviewing this guy. Right. That's what I was thinking. But, you know, myself. but <laughs> what needs to be understood here is that not only did the FBI have the entire nation of Islam, you know, under surveillance from within and without wiretaps, you name it, but also Malcolm and and. The local police, you gotta remember this, okay, everywhere, in, in every instance where we're talking about somebody who was a subversive, dangerous, part of the civil rights movement, uh, somebody who was part of the communist party, doesn't matter, anybody who ended up on a list as far as the FBI was concerned, is not just being surveilled by the feds. They're being surveilled by New York police, which is, you know, in, in this documentary, but also on a local level, believe it. The police departments did everything they could to surveil these guys, offer them, like the whole thing where he's going, yeah, we're offering them, uh, you know, security. And we know that we're doing that just to introduce more surveillance for him. Um, and he refuses it, you know, Malcolm does uh, a few times, and even recorded a conversation, yeah. which they didn't know that he had recorded. Um well, that because, whole conversation, yeah. I've heard that before. It's on YouTube. It's yes, worth it listening to it. It sure Dude. is. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that's the thing is you got to wrap your mind around this, Mike, that, you know, and even today, think about this. Today, you don't even have to go with the banana clips on the wires and go literally yeah. wiretap anything. You can do it electronically now. Uh, you know, and if you think that there aren't listening devices on people that they consider to be subversive for one reason or another, you're out of your mind. We, we have a, a great surveillance state, which now can, uh, really surveil a lot more of what they think is subversive, possibly subversive, dangerous, etc. under all sorts of interesting things. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I Go ahead. Should say, but I'll say it anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> 
I believe I was under surveillance mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Probably. And the reason wasn't anything I was doing. What happened was that something interesting happened. So technically, to be under surveillance, what they have today uh-huh. are things called fusion centers. Yes. And, and that's where their surveillance people are at to do the internet surveillance, electronic surveillance, whatever. They're, they're in these so-called fusion centers, and they're called fusion centers because they share information. With, they fuse together things from the public sector, from law right, enforcement, but, but, from private. But they share yes. with the FBI, the local police, and so forth. And it all um, becomes part of a shared situation with Homeland Security. Right, There is right. an entire incestuous thing at the, quote, fusion center, end quote. Yeah, I know all about these, Mike. But, I've but actually talked list, about but them. What, the, the, <laughs> no, the law, though, this is real important. The yes. law is that they cannot share this information they're not even supposed to do it, uh, but it can't be used in court for sure, and they're not supposed to do it. Maybe, I'll just say they don't do it uh, unless they have a warrant. Mm-hmm. In order to have a warrant, they have to have a reason. There's no nothing I was doing or am doing that would put me under surveillance. So I'm not saying I was personally under surveillance, but this is how I think it works. You know, mm-hmm. it when – I'll give this example when those when ba- when those riots took place in Baltimore a couple years ago, mm-hmm. there is an interesting story that or, or a, a wire I don't know what you call it an alert something, but there is an alert that went out to police departments all across the country, right. and I know it arrived here because I know someone who saw it, um, and what it said was that there was a threat. That Black Lives Matter people or something, some sort of group mm-hmm. might attack police officers. Mm-hmm. Well, that information gives the police, the FBI, whoever, the, a reason to get a warrant to therefore surveil anyone, you know, any group across the country. Yeah. Uh, so, at, during this time. So that's how it happened. So what happened here locally where I live, this was several years ago, and I mentioned this in passing a couple of times. There was a, a, a controversy where I live over the Confederate flag. Right. And there was a group of people really active in, uh, in supporting it. And, and, um, and I was someone you know, say there's 50 people in a group really active for the flag. There is probably six against it. Mm-hmm. Me being one of them, and I, I don't even really care about this stuff, but this is just what I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a strange thing happened. Um, one of the city council members appeared, you know, they have their city council thing once a month. He, he, is um, a, a black man, and his father was a civil rights activist, and he's on the city council. And he claimed, got up, you know, in one of these meetings, and claimed that he was being blackmailed by the um, 
the Ku Klux Klan or something or one of these okay. some group, mm-hmm. you know, was black one of these Confederate flag people or the Ku Klux Klan or something. Okay. So one of these groups he said was blackmailing him, sending him emails and over something. I don't even know what it was, but this is what he said. Okay. Well, that boom, that gave anyone any authority now the permission to surveil all these people. So I believe it's a good chance they were surveilling all these at these Confederate flag folks, and as a result, probably surveilling myself for a period of time as I was arguing with them. They would have the blanket authority to do that. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Well, see, that's a, that's a benign explanation for how you got swept into this and were probably being surveilled. But, but I don't know I was. Well, I'm just, here, I'm almost 100% certain they were. Well, let me, let me tell this. you, let me tell you why you're wrong about needing a warrant, okay, for what it is okay. they decide to investigate. And, and here's the thing. Yeah, technically speaking, they tell well, you, you that. Well, you would definitely need it. If any evidence was then used in court, you well, know. Well, yes, you would need it if it was used in court, but here's the thing. Uh, 2007, I say it again. I registered, you know, what, what happened is. And when I was, when I say I thought I was under surveillance, I don't mean people are following me around. I'm just assuming they're reading my emails and yeah, crap well, on let Facebook. Me, let me know? provide you with some proof here though. In 2007, okay, I didn't have a radio show. I was not, you know, going to conferences or, I mean, I had gone to a couple of conferences like 2003 and earlier and things like that as far as the JFK assassination goes, right? So anyway, in 2007, I'm getting ready to get married. We assign, uh, 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 you know, a restraining order against, uh, her ex-husband who threatened to sure. blow up the boat that we were going to get married on. Now that triggered Homeland Security. Because it was a terroristic threat against a registered naval vessel. I'm not kidding, by the way. Uh, the FBI came knocking on my door the night before sure. the wedding. And what did they do? Now, now you say, okay, well, that's a normal logical response, right? Here's the thing, though. If they're telling my, you know, soon-to-be wife, my fiancé at that moment, uh, all these interesting things that they knew about me, because that's what they did. They pulled her aside and said, you know, you, you realize he has been uh, the type of person who has said that the CIA might have been involved in the assassination of a president and things like this. <laughs> These are private communications, Michael. I had not released a book. I was not doing YouTube videos, nothing. Okay? They knew about private things where I had communicated with people. And they had a long list of things going all the way back to me writing a letter to President Reagan. When I was 12. Okay. So am I, was I being surveilled? I, I think it's reasonable to say I was being surveilled, Michael. And you know what? I, I assume always now that I am. <laughs> okay. That, that, that's what I just assume at this point. I know it sounds paranoid to some people, but yeah, if they're keeping track of me enough to keep a file and they can just sit there and rip off all that stuff, local FBI agent who's coming by, who, by the way, they posted a sharpshooter and other FBI agents around my wedding in order to make sure that something didn't happen, uh, which is another part of the story. But anyway, that happened in 2007, Michael. No radio show, no public pronouncements, no published book, no YouTube channel. Got it? So, <laughs> you know, um, do I believe for a second 
that it is not easy to get surveilled and investigated in some way, shape, or form? Nope, not at all. And these fusion centers are nothing more than an excuse to convolute private voluntary actions which are offered up to the government and then mixed into a nice bowl and sent to be filed away somewhere so that they can track down, investigate, connect you to things, whatever, later on if they need to. So, no, I'm not saying that uh, for a second I don't believe you that you were being surveilled, probably. And I'll tell you what else. Probably being on the show gets you surveilled, Mike, just so you know. <laughs> okay? Well, I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> no, neither am I, obviously. But I'm just saying that it, it is one thing that, you know, you got to assume at this point. Uh, and, and why are you being surveilled? Is it right? Does it seem to, uh, you know, comport with the Constitution? Not really. Works well with the Patriot Act, though. And, uh, well, you know. we got Barr and Kavanaugh <laughs> in there to make it grow. Oh, yeah. Barr will take care of all of it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, oh, man. But, Mike, seriously, uh, when you consider the surveillance on somebody, you know, that, 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 that I'm telling you right now, that's proof as far as I'm concerned that I've been surveilled for the majority of my life. Okay, one way or another by the federal government, uh, you, you got to assume if you make a statement, if you say anything controversial, uh, you, you certainly are being tracked and uh, collated into some database somewhere. Uh, and, and that's just the way it is. Now, now, you know, is it is it really Big Brother at this point? I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think Big Brother would have not even dreamt this stuff up. To be honest with you, uh, the, the, the amount of surveillance that you have over people goes way beyond a screen on your wall, doesn't it? You know, as far as the 1984, uh, uh, you know, paradigm goes. But anyway, Mike, I, I, I know we're almost out of time. Um, I think the interesting punchline here is that, uh, yeah, indeed, we may see a reexamination of the Malcolm X case, which I, I, I really hope does happen. Because, uh, again, I think that history needs to be written boldly and honestly so that we can learn from it. Uh, but, uh, you know, not everyone shares my opinion. But, Mike Swanson, I'm glad to have talked with you. And I give you the last, like, five minutes to wrap around any of this uh, any way you want. Because in the next hour, we're going to be talking to J.P. Satilli. And I'm sure current events are going to come up there. And who knows, maybe we'll talk about surveillance. But I doubt it because we're going to wind up talking about, I think... <laughs> <laughs> selective enforcement and how the Justice Department is behaving today. But uh, anyway, my, again, my apologies for some of the odd noises coming out of my mouth. Still recovering from the uh, dental action from last week. But uh, by all means, Mike, what, what, what would you like to sort of wrap the bow around this particular conversation with? Well, as far as the FBI and, and surveilling uh, people and groups and so forth, when it one thing the movie I would disagree a little bit on on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think the FBI's focus on these uh that's uh the Black Panthers and 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 these various groups and and, and you mentioned that one could dig into this stuff and, and find at times where it looks like the FBI or authorities of some sort I shouldn't say the FBI police in those cases were involved in, mm-hmm. in, uh, shootouts and killings of, of some of these people later on. I don't, I'm not convinced the FBI was directly involved in, in the Malcolm X, uh, assassination. But the thing about it is 
No, neither am I. For the record, I I I think what what that that documentary series does prove, though, uh, once again in my mind, is that they didn't care. Is that they <laughs> didn't care, and they had a lot more information on it than they ever shared with but, the prosecutor, the public, etc. But the thing about the the as far as seeing the civil rights movement and and the Nation of Islam as a threat, as a domestic threat. Um, they obviously saw Malcolm X as one. They called him, uh, you know, the possibility of a black messiah, I think right. is, the, is the phrase they used. But as far as a widespread threat, that didn't really – in the movie, this is something that's not in there. This is why I'm making a point of this is I, I'm, I think the evidence shows that the concern over what was going on in, in black America really grew – in 1965, mm-hmm. as a result of various riots that were taking place, mm-hmm. uh, and in that concern, you know, LBJ expresses it in conversations with Hoover, both of them together, and they really—that's when these programs really start to get ramped up. Right. Um, so I don't think they're ramped up because of Malcolm X or the Nation of Islam, but because of the riots that start to take place in 1965. Well, because there there was certainly uh, the outcry from people that had felt oppressed, which had resulted in those riots. And the idea was that if you could militarize, if you could organize that sort of uh, anger, if you could, uh, uh, you know, make that backlash streamlined, of course you were dangerous. Um, you know, and King was dangerous, too, because he could make people march to Washington, Right. Sure. You know, here we go. If you can organize people and get them to focus their rage. (laughs) Yeah, you might be dangerous. Um, And of course, that's why those programs were born. Does not mean they're justified? Does not mean they're right? Does not mean that it didn't result in the murder and, you know, the neutralization, which was the term they used, they wanted to neutralize individuals who were actors in this sense? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that any of that is not all criminal and uh, a, a, a completely embarrassing and uh, a, a horrifically regrettable part of American history for sure in my mind. Uh, but does it mean that it wasn't, you know, somehow logically justified by the uh, current events of the time? No, not necessarily. Uh, but also we got to we got to reckon with the fact that, you know, people were surveilled. There were a lot of innocent people who were, you know, not names we necessarily know who were harassed and surveilled as well. And um, this was the game that our intelligence community played on a domestic scale in the United States. And. Uh, I argue still plays it today, to be honest with you. Just it's, it's, you know, obviously with different tools and different toys. But Mike, uh, you know, again, I, I turn it over to you to, to give us the last word here. WallStreetWindow.com is, of course, Mike's website. I'm sure he didn't expect this conversation out of me tonight, but, uh, but it is something that's interesting and we didn't plan this. Just so happens we both watch the same documentary. And again, I say, I look forward to seeing some positive results. From this very interesting presentation, who killed Malcolm X on Netflix? So, um, yeah, I, re- I just finished. I guess saying I re- just really recommend people watch it. I, I was surprised how well it was done. Uh, I mean, it's just something I saw in there randomly, and I was wasn't really expecting much out of it. I thought, well, you know, <laughs> it's probably not going to be that good. But I watched it and got kind of sucked in myself. So, right. So. 
Right. And and look, I mean, there have been presentations on Malcolm X that have not been very good. Uh, the Spike Lee movie was interesting. Uh, it did bring about the conversation once again, uh, you know, related to Malcolm and kind of, you know, gave a resurgence to interest in his case in him as a historical figure. Uh, I think this will have the same result. As you said, you saw it from a merchandising perspective, uh, you know, but... That is uh, that is part of the reality, and we're going to see these things ebb and flow as history continues to uh, be revised by the individuals who are brave enough to do so. So that's the way I see it, Mike. But uh, I know people can see things your way by going over to WallStreetWindow.com. I definitely recommend The War State. But, uh, Mike, I thank you for making this first hour most interesting and informative as usual, my friend. Thank you. Great talk with you. J.P. Satilli will be with us in the next hour. And a quick shout-out, by the way, to George Favlitis and uh, Patricia Braunschweiler and her husband as well uh, for making this week possible. And all of you who listen, stick around. J.P. Satilli is up next. And, uh, gee, if you didn't hear Mike Swanson, rewind, re-listen, re-examine what we talked about earlier. Stick around. We'll be right back. Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Ocelli.com. What would I do? Revelation through conversation. In a radio show slash podcast. You want the good news? Listen to the Ocelli Effect. Chuck Ocelli is the most underrated voice in all media. News, education, and entertainment. The Daily Bread from Ocelli.com. Go there. Save yourself from ignorance. Ocelli.com. But we all agreed to put Ocelli.com on and listen to The Ocelli Effect. Revelation through conversation. Ocelli.com. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, he knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination built into her claim? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown.
Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. Humans, their nature demands competition. The rising tide of aggression shaping the world around us. Natural fear and disgust can overcome the ability to reason. Coping skills are left wanting. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, poses significant questions and considers the evidence that violence shapes the past and present. Human Time Bomb, The Violence Within Our Nature, Order your digital and print copies now on Amazon.com. For more information, visit tpaak.com. Carmine Savastano, Human Time Bomb. This is Maria Heller, producer and host of The Maria Heller Show. I've been podcasting since 2000. The Ocelli Show is one of the very few that I endorse. Chuck does a great job of telling you like it is and deserves your support. In these days of lies, fake news, and corporate media, it's more important than ever to support the few voices out there that are in it just like you are and aren't afraid to tell the truth. Feel good at the end of the day, knowing you've helped support a voice for We the People and donate today. Also, don't miss our twice-a-month Hell and High Water that offers solutions and not just the problems. All for one and one for all. A reminder that this is the Voice of America broadcasting worldwide. The age of transitions. Warning, warning, warning. Uncle, the podcast. The Ocelli Effect. Okay. It's the Aphrodite. Really <laughs> Orkin's Policy Radio with Pierce Redman. Ocelli.com What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite them? How do you make them feel as one with you? I don't know how. Join them first. Join them? Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. If they are angry, give them objects for their anger. But most of all, the thing that is most of the essence is that you make this mob an extension of yourself. What are the dynamics of a crowd? How do you move a mob? How do you excite? How do you make them feel as one with you? Join Yes. When you speak to them, speak to them as if you were a member of the mob. Speak to them. Ocelli.com We should learn from our relatively recent history, my brother. That's where I'm coming from. I say, oh, wow, pretty peaceful. And now, the most underrated voice in all media. Ocelli. What? What? Ocelli. Oh, oh, Ocelli. Chuck O'Shelley. 
Second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now uh, here on Ocelli.com. Of course, no matter who you are, where you are, you might be hearing this further on down the stream, et cetera, et cetera. You know what you got. Anyways, second hour, we have J.P. Satilli, the news vandal himself. I advise you to go get the rundown. I'll tell you, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's getting to be a much more interesting rundown on a daily basis, uh, and and I, I I think JP's probably feeling a little rundown by the rundown. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's just me guessing or projecting because I know I'm getting run down. Taking a look at the selective enforcement and all the other wonderful headlines that we have going on. And oh, by the way, if you're a white collar criminal, just wait around long enough, the Trump administration will get to pardoning you. Um, so, with all that having been said, JP, how you doing tonight, man? Yeah, no, it's incredible. I I I have a run right now. If I wanted to, I could put out three full rundowns right now. That's how much material I have. Mm -hmm. That's you know I've already done the 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 poll, the preliminary poll on all of the pardons and whatnot. Uh, I think my my favorite uh, one is this. Here's an excerpt from an Associated Press story. Relatives of Paul Pogue, the owner of a construction company found guilty of underpaying his taxes, whom Trump also pardoned, have donated large sums to Trump's reelection campaign. What a shock. So literally bought a pardon, literally. <laughs> and uh, the Philadelphia Choir, I did a little follow-up on Paul Pogue. So I don't know if this – see, this is one of those stories that might not even make it onto the rundown tomorrow because it is so jammed-packed with so many different things just related to the pardons. But Rick Santorum was apparently a catalyst in get, getting the pardon for Paul Pogue. And then, you know, I have all the Rog Blagojevich stuff, right, who mm -hmm. I've got a clip from him being on the the celebrity apprentice, apprentice of being fired by Trump. Then a story about how his wife worked to entreat Donald Trump. And the irony, I have a couple other stories uh, related to Chicago and Illinois, but Chicago in particular, the irony being that a study was just released like in the last 48 hours, and there's a, a, a story on it, that Chicago is considered the most corrupt city in America. Huh. So – Not uh, D.C., huh? <laughs> well, I think in terms of official corruption of you know like officials, like city officials, not the not federal level, you know what I mean. So, um, so that's all kind of funny. But and we could talk about the pardons because we've you know I know you had a little back and forth on Twitter about this, and and this is something that uh, fits your understanding of America, particularly over the last forty years, thirty years in particular, maybe twenty years in particular. But you know, it's the kleptocracy is here. It's here. It's 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 complete. It's done. It's funny that the unitary executive uh, in being completed by Donald Trump is maybe not quite. I don't know. I mean, I can make the argument both ways. Not quite what Dick Cheney had in mind when he was working with Rumsfeld in Gerald Ford's administration, and both of them were were. Particularly, but particularly Cheney, but both of them felt hamstrung by the constraints of the executive branch at that time in the wake of Nixon's departure. Mm. And uh, so, I think you know their sense was more of a of a imperial presidency in the sense of it being a muscular national security state that could put the world's resources and uh, populations under the yoke of the of you know American power. 
and put it into the interest of major corporations for perfectly legal uh, corrupt purposes like you know keeping oil in the ground in Iraq or whatever. I think this this culmination of the process of creating the unitary executive under Donald Trump's uh, guidance and with Bill Barr as his as strangely uh, cherubic version of Roy Cohn. Uh, well, hang on a second. Sorry, let's be, let me, uh, has actually just turned into a run-of-the-mill, you know, what we used to call third-world banana republic-style kleptocracy. It's 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 really it's it's kind of Putin's Russia. That's mm-hmm. kind of what it is. With with oligarchs who are teaming around, you know, Trump is about to have a fundraiser, and I believe it's five hundred and thirty-eight thousand dollars a plate. I thought that was for a couple. Per, well, okay, yeah, you're right for couples. Sorry, okay, I, it's not per plate; it's per couple. You're right. right. Yeah, I just you know, I, but, but the thing to me here is that this doesn't fly in the face of what Cheney and Rumsfeld imagined they wanted. Because we figured you'd go there. Go for it. You know why? Look, you can do all those things, like you said, that are corrupt but still legal. But here's the thing. Uh, usually that comes along with not really knowing where the legal lines are. So when you color outside of them, <laughs> you know, uh, you can get your white collar relief from a guy like Trump. Because okay, here's, okay. A, you know, here's, but here's where – and this is where we could have an, un, an under, perfectly understandable uh, – uh, Argument, right? This is completely uh, arguable. Okay. But there is something to the idea that the – particularly the the eastern establishment, Republican establishment that gave birth to what I think is the deep state, what I call the deep state, the intersection of oil, defense, and banking. Mm-hmm. The, the Bush family being sort of the scions of this intersection where the Venn diagram comes together, always going back to Prescott Bush and his association with the Dulles boys and, and then, you know, Alan Dulles creating the CIA and the CIA going, you know, United Fruit and United Fruit and, you know, bring with bananas and the, the Bush family being in, in, invested in United Fruit, all that stuff and the, the Zapata plane and the, the sugar cane plantations of Cuba, all that stuff that that I would regard as totally corrupt, corrupt use of American power. But these individuals who are part of this class of people often viewed their interests as secondary to the national interest, maybe as, I mean, I, I now, like, I'm, I'm just going to say they thought of themselves as people who were working for the national interest of the United States of America. Okay. They, that's why they came up with this term national interest. Yeah. Thank you very much, it. Mr. Dershowitz. Uh, Wait, well, hold, hold, hold on. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Ahead, I'm just ahead. putting, look, we're, this is for the sake of argument. Uh-huh. It's for the sake of argument. Okay. 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 So, I, as I always remark, isn't it funny how America's national interests always seem to be in other people's countries? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, you know. I we, thought national, that weren't those international interests? Anyway, mm-hmm. I think what, with Trump, what you get is the stripping away of all the pretense and veneer. It's like, nah, it's, it's, this isn't really in, in national, it has to do with national interests at all. No, I've got a, 
I've got a, a, a property in Turkey. Erdogan wants relief for a bank that's under indictment and having a lot of troubles, indictments and sanction issues. But the indictment with the DOJ, Bill Barr, going to delay it. No problem. In exchange, we will vacate our troops out of this area of Syria so you can go in and clear out the Kurds. Everybody wins. And the idea of national interest sort of, you know, for the flag and for God and country and for, you know, freedom and all of the things that America stands for, a beacon of liberty, a shining city on a hill. Nah, nah, that's nah. We don't do that anymore. We don't even bother with that anymore. So, yeah. so, so, I, you know, just saying Herbert Walker Bush may have on some level – actually believed some of his own Kool-Aid. I don't think that that actually happens inside the Trump administration at all. Mm. Okay. Okay. You know, maybe it's because I am swallowing the Evan Williams. I'm swishing around my teeth at the moment. But, <laughs> uh, and, and I am, by the way, just so you know. No, if, if you have procedures, there's no nothing better for the gums, let I, me tell you. I'm telling you right now, it's it's definitely helping, but it might might be hindering my ability to understand. And, yes, I said thank you, Mr. Dershowitz, because it almost sounds to me like uh, the whole, well, you know, somebody might feel as though they're acting in the national best interest because they're acting in their best interest. I agree. And, I know, agree. But, uh, you, but, you, but you have to admit that, yeah. particularly during the Cold War, as much as I think the Cold War didn't have to happen and it was used as a pretense for expanding executive power and for right. running up massive, massive defense budgets, all of those things. There, there was at least a veneer of this is America. America has an agenda that transcends the individual. Mm. And, and I, you know, as much as I despise Dick Cheney, right. I think the one thing that, that I hang my hat on Dick Cheney, which is probably not a smart thing to do because it's fiction, but I think one of the, the most underrated movies of, of Oliver Stone's career is W. Didn't okay. do well in the, in the box office. I think didn't have the budget, by the way, uh, of many of other of Stone's films. It was right. not on as high a budgetary scale. As, right. He as had to piece it things, together. Yeah. It actually, it was not a smooth, production process as i recall mm -hmm. um incredible acting in the film oh josh brolin I, please yeah. josh brolin i think nailed nailed it, nailed <laughs> it. it. <laughs> and i think that that was part of the problem with the film is that you actually have a layer of sympathy for george bush because of the portrayal right because because actually stone tried to and brolin together tried to deconstruct his psyche. And when you deconstruct his psyche and where he was, you begin to have some explanation for some of his decisions and behaviors. And when you start to get a nuanced picture, much the way Oliver Stone and Anthony Hopkins also did with Nixon. Because okay. I thought Nixon, Hopkins as Nixon is maybe like one of the three greatest acting performances I've ever seen in my life. Oh, absolutely true. Yes. It's insanely good. It's insanely, really, really good. The one bad thing is the editing that, that kind of made Nixon look like a drunk. And I don't think that was the case. Uh, well, yeah, at the end, 
the pills and the drinking yeah. and all that. Yeah. Other so, than that, though, if you extract that from that film, holy God. <laughs> that is an amazing it's, portrayal it's a, of Yeah, Nixon. it is amazing. So yes. and what I love about that is that it showed that Nixon's fatal flaw was his mother's looming conscience okay. in his life. And that's what made him terrible at, at what he did, which was being – he was actually – not that great at being a scumbag. He actually he wasn't able to hold it together, and that's right. I guess the premise there. So well, here's, here's the thing though. Let me let me throw a seriously spoiling monkey wrench into this conversation real fast. Okay? Please do, as and you are apt to do, Chuck. The, 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 look, the, I have a skill set, <laughs> so <laughs> I will utilize it. Um, here's the thing. Now, I think back to the pardoning of the Hammonds, and I think back to the pardoning of Scooby Lid, uh, Scooter Libby, excuse me. Uh, I, I, I think of Michael Milken, for God's sake, on this list. Um, yeah. And I look at it and I say, okay, now what is the pattern here? Right? Uh, again, the Hammonds, all these, you know what this is? This is nothing here. Put your tinfoil hat on, JP. This is nothing but... A way to try and, 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 oh, by the way, let's not forget the Kardashian suggested pardon, which he utilized for a Super Bowl commercial, right? And yeah, all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Throw it all together. Why does any of it make sense? You know well, it why? It makes sense to me, but why does it make sense to you? Well, it makes sense to me because this gives a diversified sympathy vote from various fringe elements in the he society. Thinks. That's what he, he thinks. thinks. Yeah, no, he thinks. And, and I, also th- I just think it's a troll on another level. Well, I think it's okay. just a troll. Well, I think he's just trolling. Well, yeah, but I, I think these things, you know, of course, they're obviously encouraged. Like this latest slew was encouraged heavily by, uh, you know, Giuliani for sure. Uh, some of these other things were political advice. Like, you think he cares about the Hammonds and the fact that they got convicted, you know? Uh, well, some uh, of this was also apparently Sheldon Adelson and, uh, and other big donors lobbying on behalf of specific people. And well, so. Right. And anybody else he feels okay, like so giving the, the medal okay, of freedom to. So this brings to, us back yeah. to where I was going. Mm-hmm. Because let me, let me tie this together. Because, see, I think that what you have here is just simple transactions. Mm-hmm. I think if if you really want to just take one lens and put it over the entire Trump presidency to try and make it explicable, it's transactions. It's just a series of transactions. And he was hired. His power comes from his ability to fulfill his job, and that's to transact business. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. He's transacting business. He's transacting – he's transacted business on behalf of of a number of interests, Russian, Turkey, Tur- uh, Turkish interests, he's done it on behalf of, of of Bibi Netanyahu and Israeli interests, and Sheldon Adelson. He's done it on behalf of the defense industry. That's why he got so involved in the F thirty five and selling it overseas. He basically sees his role, or the his the way he preserves his his power, is to fulfill his role as somebody who's transacting business, mm-hmm. which fits his image of himself as a deal maker. And so this gets back to where I was going with the, with W and Oliver Stone. The one moment in there that I think is the sort of the magnum opus of the entire, of the entire body of of work in that film Mm -hmm. is the scene in which Richard Dreyfus as Dick Cheney explains the reason why they're in Iraq. 
and he pulls up a map and it's like a it's like a really cool illustrated map and basically shows that the whole point is to foreclose on Iran, close out the Persian Gulf, put it put the put all of the world's energy in the hands of the United States so that nobody will as he said f with us ever again. Mm-hmm. To create empire. He actually says say call it what it is, it's empire. Okay. So for Dick Cheney I'm not sure that Dick Cheney, for instance, was as motivated by filthy lucre as he was by a desire to go down in history as as the sort of the de facto American general who built the sort of armchair general who built empire. And so I think that that's see what I'm saying one is a one is it's it's a it's a nuance. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree, and it's not that Dick Cheney hasn't made money. Dick Cheney is not poor, right? Mm-hmm. But he's not quite like Rumsfeld, who really was just always looking for another deal. He was p- going from the defense industry to the pharmaceutical industry. He would do anything for money, right? Uh, some of these guys that were around the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, they were in it for money. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Dick Cheney actually was a, was megalomaniacal enough to believe that his interest in creating empire and the unitary executive was actually in the best interest of every single American. Mm. As delusional as that is, and as much as I disagree with his interpretation of both his role in history and what the United States should be, I think he actually believed that. Mm -hmm. And that made him incredibly dangerous and brutal. No, true enough, but I don't think we should underplay the incredibly dangerous and brutal results that are going to come from, you know, the the thing that this charade is being lined up with with Bill Barr about, you yeah. know, hey, stop tweeting, uh, you're making my yeah, job I harder. That. I don't believe any. I of mean, that. give me a break, okay? The 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 wholesale debates on this are ridiculous. Fact is, we are watching the groundwork laid for what. For Stone to be pardoned, for Flynn to be let go, for anybody who was connected sure. to Trump, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry. I bet yes. you Manafort is going to get himself a pardon oh, pretty Man- soon. Manafort's the key. Manafort is the key because Deripaska is is inv- invested in Kentucky. And uh-huh. Manafort is the guy who can drop the goods on Deripaska at any minute if he wanted. He can't because he's beholden. I think the reason why he never gave up Deripaska and why Manafort swallowed everything and lied to the investigators when he said he was cooperating. Think about this. Manafort signed a cooperation deal and then lied Mm -hmm. as a part of his cooperation deal. That's why he's sitting in prison right now in particular. So – and Deripaska is what? He's the aluminum man magnet. He's an aluminum oligarch. What did the Trump administration do? Inexplicably put put tariffs on the aluminum industry, aluminum trade. People are like, what is this about? We don't even have an aluminum business that matters anymore. What is going mm-hmm. on here? Right. He was basically destabilizing the industry on behalf of of a guy who was Suffering from major aluminum tariffs put on him, tariffs on his aluminum business put on him, uh, and excuse me, sanctions put on him, not tariffs, sanctions put on him by the by the previous administration, and then over the course of of two years, 
Mnuchin starts creating exceptions for him on all of his sanctions, gives him sanction relief. <clears throat> they do this weird deal with his business where he basically is no longer part of the business so he can be free of the sanctions, but he's actually still part of the business. And then lo and behold, the he, he's uh, you know they open up a an aluminum aluminum plant in Kentucky. Hmm, who's the who's the senator from Kentucky? That'd be Mitch McConnell. Uh huh. So anyway, so Deripaska is this crucial guy who was uh, elemental to all of this this stuff that led to the Mueller investigation. You gotta you gotta pardon Manafort, of course you have to. So this is what I'm getting at. Trump is is all transactions. These are all transactions. He doesn't have anything of make America great again or America first. None of that matters at all to him. That's a sales pitch. That is a that is a busty assistant standing next to him on the stage, twirling her little pasties in the while he puts a wrap he stuffs rabbits in a hat. So when you look back, he can pull a rabbit out of the hat and go, "Look, it's the greatest economy in the world." It's all it's all illusion so that he can continue. Oh, well, by the way, while we're watching him do all of these magic tricks, the real looting is going on behind him because he's basically turned over every corner of the of his administration to the industries and the lobbyists and the interests. Those in, in, those agencies were meant to regulate and monitor mm. without fail. All of them, all of them. I've said this. A number of times online, it's, and it's funny the reaction I get. Mm-hmm. I, I it goes something like this: I say, "We will not know the full depth of corruption of this administration until after it's gone, and it will eventually go down as the most corrupt uh, administration in history." And people say, "What do you mean, eventually?" No, it's all right. I was like, "No, you have no idea how deep the rot is." I can't keep on top of it. I can't I can't manage it. Every corner and I'm not even just talking about like you know the agricultural department. I'm talking about sub offices in the USDA right. that have been both gutted so they you know they push people out. Do you know that they just took that whole agency and said, "Yeah, we're all moving to a, across the country." So you either Move with us. You uproot your family because you've lived here and come to work inside in D.C. for the last 15, 20, 30 years or you take a buyout and you leave. And they knew that would happen They to cut the workforce in half. Just relocate a whole agency. Mm-hmm. I think – what was it? To like Kansas or something under Sonny Purdue. It's like in, it, the, the stuff that is happening is absolutely insane. So in the, in the, in the midst of this, as Steve Bannon would call it, war on the administrative state – the agencies are being turned over to lobbyists, and they can basically run amok. And one of the most most effective ways of dealing with regulation or dealing with laws that you don't particularly care for, if you can't just get rid of them by executive fiat, is to simply make it impossible for them to be enforced. Mm-hmm. See, and, and here is the last sticking point I'm going to offer you because – We've okay. only got about 30 minutes left, and I want to throw this on the table. <laughs> okay. Punch stick away. Here we go. Um, 
His supporters are the thing that actually surprises me. The concept that white-collar criminals protect their own, the concept that one, you know, con man wants to take care of another con man because he's going to get something on the back end, all of that, none of this is surprising to me. I understand organized crime. Sure, yeah. Okay. Of course you do. I, I, I better just, than most. Better than most. Sadly, yes. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. the thing is, I understand all that. That, you know, I'm not happy about it. But I, I get it. Here's what I don't get. The supporters, JP, the rubes that are sitting there who have, for the past decade, these people, I can identify them, are individuals who felt as though the enforcement end of the Justice Department, whether it's locally, you know, their DAs, their town officials, whatever, their courts, have always been stacked against them because they don't have the money to hire the lawyers. They don't have the money to buy the results. They don't have the money to, you know, actually get the desired outcome from the selective enforcement system as it stands. Okay? They're supporting this. It's okay to let Michael Milken off the hook. It's okay to let Bernie Couric, who, again, if you were somebody interested in 9-11, you could point a finger at him. Yeah, no, he's just well, and he's just he's just a scumbag. I mean, he did scumbaggery. And, but I mean, go, go well, down this list. Time. Go down this list outside you know? of a couple of weird things where, again, he's currying favor with certain segments of the population. Right. Again, Symp- the, the the sympathy ones that he's trying to pull. Right. Uh, yep, you're right. If you take some of those odd sympathy ones, where you know that if it didn't have a good political result among a certain segment of the population, Donald Trump wouldn't give five seconds worth of a thought. Right. Because they're trying to shave two or three points off of turnout among Latinos and African Americans in key districts and swing states. And if they they know that they could just save three or five thousand votes here and there. That can make the difference in flipping the electoral college their way. Right. So, and shaving, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely happening. And the Hammonds, if you don't understand it, is shaving a little bit off of that libertarian hardcore yeah. vote. That's right. what you're doing there. The guys who would still vote for Gary Johnson right now. Okay. You're, you're going to shave a couple of points off of them because, hey, wait a minute. He stood up for people that's that, right. you know, we felt were a cause celeb at one point here. The Hammonds. So I'm just saying, and and you can find many, many examples of this, but when you take a look at the white-collar criminal defense, I get it, I get it, I get it. But why is it that people that don't have the means or the connections to get these results are happy about this? Because he is doing it on their behalf because they have become voyeurs, and he is basically – he is their stand-in because he understands – television and he understands the american people yeah but see if one of his supporters wait wait wait, wait. but if one of his supporters got busted with a pound of cannabis okay and that is that is irrelevant was going to go to prison but i'm just saying if they were going to go to prison with a pound of cannabis because it's illegal in their state to have it and all that kind of good stuff even though it's a victimless crime and you know the justice department might treat them harshly especially if they were of the particular right color or economic status um you know, you, you you think your pardon is going to wind up on his desk? Do no, you really? But, that, but again, that is totally – that's not even in, in the world that they're living in. It's not even part of the reality that they're experiencing because hmm. we are um, a nation of voyeurs. That's what we've become. 
and they've got a television star who is who is cast himself as, in the starring role of the greatest reality show in the history of mankind called the Trump presidency mm. and he is trolling he is he is um he is making people angry he is expressing righteous indignation he has connected their sense of grievance to his persona, persona and his daily onslaught is like a it's like a little uh endorphin button that he's pushing on every one of their brains right. and and they're just getting their little endorphin drip every day by watching him go out and own the libs or own the elites and express their anger in real time on television in a format that they can understand, which is sitting on their ass in front of their computer, or in front of a TV and getting their experience through that. So, and then, and then getting, yeah. Hey, and getting to go to a rally, like going to a WWE thing, going to a, going to a, 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 a you know, a music show, you get to go see the rally. It's, it's kind of like perfect. And look, Chuck, what's left for people. It's not like, this country is not a revolutionary country. It just isn't. People don't come out. You want to see countries where like like there's a revolutionary spirit is there, where the democracy spirit is there. Just announce a possible budget cut in South Korea and see what happens when the <laughs> with the with, with the Koreans. Mm. They will come out by the hundreds of thousands. How about France? If one tenth of what Trump was doing had been done by Macron. The French people would shut down France for a week, the country. Right. They would just shut it down. Okay? They go do that. Here in the United States, where where so many of the avenues of 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 political participation and um um and and redress of one's grievances have been shut down over time, and because the system itself was designed by the founders to to eschew democracy in favor of elite control over the instruments of power. I mean, we you know, we talk about our democracy and I'll I'll say it, I'll talk about it cuz you know, it's it's the common it's the lingua it's the lingua franca, right? This is what we use. This is the this is the, how we talk about it. This is not a democracy. It's never been a democracy. The 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 most democratic moment we've we probably had was was the period between the beginning of the of the the depression and FDR's presidency through to the murder of of John Kennedy and and that was that was a sort of an upswelling of de, of democracy and what has happened since then well the people who hated FDR had a plan and they've implemented it and it's culminated in Donald Trump and what is it you take the masses and you control the masses how by giving them a show and you give them the illusion of power by giving them a, uh, a doppelganger, a stand-in, a front man, a pitch man, a salesman who can sell them on the idea that his victories are their victories when, they, when, when their victories and his victories are two totally different things. Mm. They're actually not getting victories. They're slowly losing ground. Mm. While he yeah. continues to to front for uh, basically what has become an outright criminal conspiracy. 
which is amazing because their sense of grievance is absolutely overruling their actual grievances. Exactly. I know. <laughs> that's the beauty of it, Chuck. Uh, uh, beauty. <laughs> but, but look, well, Chuck, I, I, you know, you know me and I, and all the listeners of, of your show know that I am I'm a big on responsibility. I'm big on it. I, I mean, I I don't. I don't buy this stuff about the American, poor American people. You know what? If, if you are not, if you are not completely torn up inside of what happened to Iraq and the fact that it happened in your name and it happened on all of our watch, I got no time for you. I just don't. Mm -hmm. I blame us all. I blame us all, all of us. Now that's maybe not a popular opinion. I know a lot of people, another thing I don't like. We got to blame, got to blame the corporations. Blame the corporations. Well, you know what? You know what's in corporations? People. Mm. There are people there. See, I think we, you know, I, one of the one of my critiques of the progressive left side is that there's a tendency to attack um, faceless systems and to create large. Um, Sort of like super super entities that you attack. I'm going to attack capitalism. I'm going to attack corporations. I'm going to attack you know this and that. It's but you know what? We're all participating in it. How about empire? People, uh, I'm against American empire. Well, you want to know what? You are living on the fruits of American empire, my friend. If you are in this country, you've experienced some of the fruits of empire, and and people have died. So that you could have some of what you've got. That's just the reality of it. Mm. We are all living on the fruits of what came before. We are all in part, partaking in the fruits of slavery, of the decimation and genocide of the American Indians, and the and the their all the treaties that were broken. I mean, it's just I'm all about this responsibility thing, and I think that that's one thing that's missing. And so we as a as a people don't like responsibility we don't like history we don't like looking at all the ways in which we're complicit with it so i think that there's an it's not just that 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 they've been dazzled by the show i think that there's a huge buy-in it's you know what if i participate in this transaction with this system that has a front man just spinning fairy tales that absolve me of all of my my complicity in the system in which I am I'm a, I'm up, the system that I'm upset uh, uh, with it it actually frees me and in a way it's kind of a perfect summation of American Protestant Christianity which is not about about absolution it's about it's about um, a get out of sin free card so that you can continue to do the things you want to do without the burden of the responsibility or the guilt. Hmm. You know, and, and this is why I, I am starting to feel as though we as a people, if we are not pleased with what we see, uh, we must learn to weaponize solidarity because no. that is what they have done. Those that wish to have the results that we see right now have done effectively. They've weaponized yep. solidarity. And that's what they've created with this Colt 45 structure, this MAGA hat wearing mob. They have weaponized solidarity. Now, it is among 
not a majority of the population, but you don't require a majority of the population in order to get a result. No. So I, I, I think this is, this is the ultimate problem. And yes, you're correct. We, we need to, uh, all of us need to understand that there is some responsibility that we own in this one way or another. If you're un, if you're not pleased, I think we need to learn to do what it is they have done, which is to weaponize solidarity. Again, like you said, rooting for the WWE superstar to win the belt. That's you know, it. That that's that's what they have figured out how to keep people doing. Yes. And you know, no mistake that uh, you know the guy in the White House is also in the uh, WWE World Wrestling Entertainment Hall of Fame. Right. And look, it's and and if you look at uh, the presidents of the last, you know, particularly Republican presidents of the last, you know, thirty years, Reagan, GE Theater, total front man. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think comes out of W, the the movie by Oliver Stone, is something that I've thought when it was happening. What was what was Bush? He was a front man. He was a front man. Everybody knew who was running the machinery behind. And not coincidentally, when when Reagan, after particularly after Reagan was was shot by the son of Herbert Walker Bush's uh, one of his political contributors, I, I still love that. I just think that's amazing, don't you? I mean. Well, that's what I think. That's one of the the funnest fun facts of American politics. Yeah, is that Ronald Reagan was shot by the son of one of Herbert Walker Bush's political contributors. I just think that's great. So, and, and at the time, if you weren't listening to May Russell, okay, um, you didn't know that. Or or Roger Mudd that day, like that day, it got reported. Roger Mudd said, in a strange coincidence, yeah. You know, uh, Neil Bush was meeting with Scott Bush, uh, with Scott Hinckley, um, and then it disappeared. And you're right. Then it was just May Brussel and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Herbert Walker Bush was the guy who was basically running all the covert stuff behind the scenes, former CIA man, right? He was, you know, who he was the point man on intelligence, much like Cheney would become for his son. Mm, I object and, to the word former, by the way, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I and I've had that discussion with people, and this uh, somebody who is has a great deal of expertise on the CIA. He and I disagreed on that um, on a national radio show once, and I, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, man. I I just, you, you, it's not the house that Mickey Rivers built; it's the house that Ruth built. And you don't name the CIA after a guy who was not in the CIA and only ran it for nine or ten months. Mm-hmm. Because it's the George Herbert Walker Bush Center for Intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it's the house that Ruth built because it's Babe Ruth, you know? It's, it's anyway. Uh, so where was I going with this? So these – and here's Donald Trump. He is the ultimate culmination of the the shiny front man who can stand out, out – on stage, can fill up your television screen. Now he can fill up your Twitter feed. He can fill up your day. He can fill up your mind. He can fill up all the conversations around you. He can fill up this, this, the culture and social media and, and even relationships. Everything now he can dominate while what happens? While the, the usual suspects rob the bank. It's it's like it's nothing complicated. It's not that new. It's just been perfected in a way. Mm. It's just kind of like it's come to its its uh, is the word ap- apotheosis. It's 
It's come to its its ultimate expression. And I don't think it's coincidental. And I wrote this I, back at back when he, I think it was before he was inaugurated that uh, I called it Trump's Reagan reboot. He is he's just taken Reagan, the Reagan administration and rebooted it and put it on steroids. That's all. That's all right. it is. He stole Make America Great Again. It's not coincidental. Right. And we think this is all something new, and it's an aberration. This is not an aberration. This isn't an aberration for evangelical Christianity. This isn't an aberration for American political fandom. This isn't an aberration for anything. This is the culmination. This is a process. And you know, you, this weaponization of solidarity is a brilliant observation on your part because this is where we're at, where the where the working class and the middle class have had wedges driven in between them so that they cannot form a political block large enough to overcome the desires of elite landed moneyed classes mm-hmm. or the elite landed money class. I would say classes because there are variations in there. Little but yeah. and and the last time that they were really fully together was actually FDR. Mm. And if you look at the people who are behind what were what's called the what, what was it the modern conservative movement starting with with uh was it um is it Russell Kirk I always I always it's Kirk uh, is it Russell or Paul Kirk anyway um and then that leads to the National Review and William F Buckley CIA agent um mm-hmm. <laughs> these these guys were part of a concerted effort to dis- to undo and dismantle the New Deal. And the way that you dismantle the New Deal is you d- dismantle the coalition that made the New Deal possible. And what you are seeing right now with the uh, amazing flip of the of the working class from the Re- Democratic Party to the Republican Party and the division of these two Units that should have a great deal of solidarity because their interests are economic interests are aligned, mm-hmm. but being div- divided along not just culture war, but now just just teen fandom wars. Just right. I mean, I mean, it's it was culture war for a long time, but now that it's like now it's just well, what color hat do you wear? What color? What color hat? It's not mm-hmm. even so. Where where do you stand on all of these issues? No, what's your hat? It's just it's it's kind of perfect, actually. What's if you want want. if you want to control this society? Well, and it does appear as though it's been effective, but that's that's the that's the problem here. And I just it it is so hard. It is so hard to watch this happening. Um, you know, and and I just I, I I I am speechless sometimes at the ridiculousness. That, you know, do you think this is anywhere near in your best interest? They don't care. It's like, no, we're going to go get those people. Those people are the ones that are responsible for the problems. And if they had any power, they would make everything terrible. And that's all there is to it. And we got to We got to get them. We got to own them. And they're not even organized, the alleged opposition. That's the, the hilarious part of it all is that there's just, you know, multiple enemies lists here. And they're being produced over and over again. And it's like, wait a minute, is this a Nixon reboot? Is this a Reagan reboot? What's going on here? But again, I I also want to note responsibility here, just like you do. And the complicity of the mainstream media to take this in as part of their business model. 
at this well, point Well, I mean, in time. because this is this makes money. It's a it's this, a printing press. <laughs> it's a it's a it's an ATM machine. I mean, it's, even better. Yeah, it's it's it's. You know, I watched. Um, I watch. I always watch a network whenever it comes on, and Turner Classic Movie shows it a lot. And every February, it's going to be shown because they do 31 Days of Oscar, mm. and so because of the incredible, it just did really well at the Oscars in '77. I think that was because it came out in '76. So I think it, it did it come out? Maybe it was '76 or '77. So, um, so it's always shown, and it's still. It's not like this wasn't. We didn't see this coming. Patty Chayefsky saw this coming. It it was it was in process in the seventies. It just it hadn't taken hold yet. It hadn't hadn't gotten to this point. And you had to go through a series of of, of I think they're manufactured boom and bust cycles because I mm-hmm. think that the financialized economy that was um, instituted with supply side economics is just. It's just it has to go to boom and bust. That's actually what it's designed to do. It's designed to to generate the the spike and then and then the collapse because you make money on the spike and then you make money uh, not just on the betting on the collapse, but then when the collapse happens and all the assets are undervalued because you made the money before it on the rise up and you and you placed your short your short bets or whatever you did, then you have a huge amount of money to hoard assets at a cut rate. And then you do it again, right. and then you do it again, and then the process what it does is it keeps the working and middle classes in constant turmoil, so that they are all they're doing is trying to survive on a treadmill. That's the one place where you I you can have sympathy for the people who have been manipulated and and sold this bill of goods over and over again, and given all this infotainment to try mm-hmm. and to try and assuage their their the, this gaping hole that's left inside of them from the fact that the economy is something that's constantly in turmoil and working against them. And so, I mean, that's kind of the thing is the American dream dissipating, the American dream of a car, a couple cars and a couple kids and a dog and a fence and I'm going to own my own home and maybe I'll start my own business and I'll be a small business owner and I'll have a hardware shop like uh like uh, Mr. Cunningham and and happy days, right? <laughs> happy Living days, the American dream. Yeah. Living the American dream, right? Small business owner, that is the American dream. You're a small business owner, you own your own business, you're a good, you know, hardworking capitalist, you take care of the people and the in the it's it, it's um it's it's a wonderful life, you know, it's the it's the banker who knows everybody in the town and is and and everybody knows him and and if somebody needs a loan and and they can't make their payment for a couple months the banker doesn't care because we're all in this together that whole ethos right mm. gone because it's just cutthroat competition survival right on the serengeti plane kill or be killed you know corporate raiders of the 80s and the what were they remember they were called do you remember this the corporate raiders of of which michael milken mm-hmm. was a part of they were called the barbarians at the gate. That was the term for them. Right. When the when the financial elites would come and see a company that maybe had a couple weaknesses in it and it's, and could use a little restructuring, now what they would do is they would come in. The barbarians would come to the gate, and when they would bust down the gate, they would buy the company. They would fire all the staff, 
And by cutting all that overhead, the stock market, we go, hey, they're cutting overhead. That means they have more profitability. Wink, wink. The price goes up for a couple couple weeks or maybe a couple months. Once it tops out, then they sell high and they, they sell off. They collapse the company and then sell off the remaining assets oh, for, yeah. for, for De- profit. Decapitate, amputate, and then sell yep. off the chunks. Yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. in that environment – where the American dream has been fully foreclosed, which is why I think our generation is the way we are, Chuck. Gen X. You and I were, you know, we're, we're, we're pure Gen X, right? You know, I was born right. in 69, so this is about two or three years into the formation of the, of the generation. And so I feel like I'm sort of like a leading edge, sort of the beginning of it. So I got to see the remnants of the American dream as they were slowly fading away in the seventies. And as they were finally foreclosed in the eighties, right? I, I think was it's only one three years younger I, than you, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, but you're right there. And you saw, you saw the remnants of the American dream, oh, right? Yes. You saw it before it was gone. Mm-hmm. I think what's left for us is what, well, if I can't have all that, Donald Trump can own the libs and I could get a bunch of likes and a bunch of shares and somebody can retweet for me. Because callow, meaningless, minor online social media media celebrity is just about the only satisfaction that's left. Mm. And this is where surveillance capitalism comes in. And we are we are perfectly um, massaged like like. Kobe beef cows in Japan, right? You know, they feed them beer and they massage the Kobe beef cows, right? Mm-hmm. We have been massaged and we are ready for slaughter for a, for a surveillance capitalist paradigm that takes all of our, 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 um, our, uh, behavioral surplus data and creates for us the perfect bubble world to, to, reinforce and confirm all of our biases so we never have to step outside of it and we can live forever in our little bubble and have all of our little goods and services sent to us, all of our food delivered to us, all of our packages sent to us, mm-hmm. any whim we want at a at a push button. Just make sure you have a credit card with enough room on it, which you probably will get because the Fed is basically – a part of a Ponzi scheme of of continual debt that's never going to be paid, and and meanwhile the people at the top will will get away with murder. And if by chance you should actually organically develop some legitimate grievance, don't worry, we have a sense right. of grievance for you to channel it into. Right. Right. So here here it is. That grievances is, are us. <laughs> grievances are us, which is basically what it comes down to. And JP, unfortunately, we're down to the last couple of minutes here, but I, I unfortunately can't argue with almost anything you said outside of former CIA. Uh, no, <laughs> sorry, I, I object. That's okay. That's okay. Look, I hate to be dire, and I do want to end on one little thing. Sure. I know that this this the Bernie folks are gonna are not going to like this, but Uh some of this grievance stuff is taking root on the, on the left too. And I know there's a whole stuff about the, you know, the angry Bernie bros or whatever. And I think it is probably partially overblown. Twitter is not as big as we think it is. It's not as many people as we think it is, but the purity tests and, and the, the, the the political correctness and all that stuff, it's kind of goes that direction too. And so there's, there's a there's a 
the disdain for people on the other side and the, just the writing them off completely and seeing a, uh, somebody in a hat and saying that person is fundamentally bad person, it, it helps feed into this, this paradigm that has us divided and conquered. Unfortunately, you're correct. And even though some things, you know, appear to be right, doesn't necessarily mean they are. You know, uh, appearances can be deceiving, and that's an interesting thing here. When you talk about this, you know, uh, a feeder bar that people keep hitting on Twitter, and you talk about these responses and these, you know, battles that are won, owning the libs online, and so on and so forth, um, it's not as though both sides of the alleged paradigm do not suffer from the same disease. So let us always keep that in mind as we watch these things unfold. But unfortunately, like I said, we're out of time. And we got to remember this. Uh, uh, we, we can get the rundown at least all the way up to inauguration in 2021. Yep. Uh, because y- you said it, if Trump is reselected, I'm you, done. You're done. Which, unfortunately, my friend, I gotta say, I can predict nothing else but his reselection in 2021 as it stands. But what do you think? As it stands now, I cannot argue with that. I, but a lot of things can happen, and you know what? There's, there's one person who can beat Donald Trump, and that's Donald Trump. You know, that would be interesting to see happen, and uh, I'd pay good money for that, even on pay-per-view. But meanwhile, JP, thank you for helping us navigate all of this. Uh, We will talk again in two weeks. Ciao. Anyway, guys, the Ocelli Effect is finished. No matter who you are, where you are, not only do I hope you you are well, but I hope you remember that I am merely Ocelli and all of you are indeed the effect. Good night.